Turn in your Bibles to Habakkuk chapter 3. Habakkuk 3, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 15 this morning. We're continuing in our series in Habakkuk. Page 786 in the Pew Bible. 786. Habakkuk 3, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 15. It's a longer passage. I'll read the text as we go through the message. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we ask this morning that you would work in our hearts and minds to have a greater passion for you, a greater love for you, that we would worship you through prayer, that we'd go to you with our requests, petitions, and that we would continually trust in your promises. In Jesus' name, amen. Prayer, it's been said that prayer is one of the most neglected personal spiritual disciplines. We might know this from our own personal experience. Reading the Bible might not be as difficult, right, because we can feel like we get something out of our Bible reading, or we can be challenged by something that we've read, or we can check a box for our daily reading because then we feel like we've accomplished something. I like to do that. I like to check a box, feel like I've accomplished something. But prayer can be a little more challenging, perhaps because the answers are outside of our control. Or we get stuck in a rut and we pray the same thing over and over and over again. Or we have a hard time praying because we can't see God. We might go through spurts of having great times of prayer and sense with, of fellowship with God and oftentimes, other times, what ha- might often happen is this. Did I really accomplish anything? One writer says that prayer is as sure evidence of the presence of God as the rising of the thermometer is evidence of an increase in temperature. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to, I want to encourage us and help us realize this morning is that prayer is an act of worship in which we plead with God, we recall God's faithfulness, and we trust in his promises. Prayer is vital to our relationship with God. And as an act of worship, it is essential in the life of those who live by faith in Jesus Christ. And what we'll notice in our text this morning is that Habakkuk's prayer is more than just a prayer. It was a part of the worship in the community that was intended to be remembered, passed on, and sung and recited for those who would live by faith in the midst of difficulty. And what we'll observe this week and next week is that Habakkuk's circumstances didn't change. So he prays his circumstances don't change. But as he encountered and experienced and interacted with the living God, the view of his circumstances changes. And his response to his circumstances changes. So first, if we are going to live by faith in the midst of difficulty, then our knowledge of God must lead to worship and prayer. Our knowledge of God must lead to worship and prayer. Verses 1 and 2. 
Look with me at verses 1 and 2. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to Shigianoth. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. The prophet had brought the complaint, his complaint to the Lord, right? That there was violence and injustice within Israel among his own people. And he wondered, is God going to remain silent? Right? We saw that in, in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. But then God answered him and, and told him that he was raising up the Babylonians as an instrument of judgment. And they would be taken, Judah would be taken into exile, 1, 5 through 11. Habakkuk responds with confusion. How could God use a more wicked nation to discipline his people? We saw that in chapter 1, verse 12 through 2-1, to which the Lord then replied, wait for it, wait for it. The righteous shall live by his faith. 2, 2 through 5. And then there was this pronouncement. Two weeks ago, we looked at the pronouncement of woes that revealed that God would ultimately and finally judge the wicked for their idolatry, for their injustice, for their violence. 2, 6 through 20. Even though Judah is going to be taken into captivity by the Babylonians, God will also judge them for their wickedness. And then in 2, 20, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth Keep silence before him. And now here we are in chapter 3. Habakkuk prays. He petitions with God. He praises God. His, his lament in the first two chapters has now turned to praise. And both of these kinds of prayers belong in the life of those who live by faith in Christ. Lament and praise. So verse 1, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to Shigianoth. This is more than just a private prayer that Habakkuk brings to the Lord. He is the prophet of God. And as you know from prophets, from the prophets in the Old Testament, they would intercede for the people. And he would bring God's message then back to the people. And we also see here that this prayer is in the form of a psalm. It, it's poetic. And it would be used as, as a song in the worship of God's people. Not just for his own generation, but for all those who walk by faith in the midst of trials and difficulty and oppression. Like other psalms in the Bible, this prayer would be used in the corporate worship of God's people. It was according to Shigianoth. Shigianoth, one writer comments on the meaning of this word Shigianoth and says, he said this, I have taught Hebrew for a number of years. I've studied and taught the Old Testament for a number of years. And what does Shigianoth mean? We don't know. We don't know. We don't precisely know. Biblical scholars don't precisely know what this means. It could refer to a musical notation. It could be associated with the regular meter of song. It could be a musical instrument. Some have said that the verb that comes from this word, Shigianoth, could refer to a triumphant song with sudden changes of emotion. Right? You'd like to see me in my emotions. Well, maybe I'm like this in my emotions and passion. 
that there's a strong sense of excitement with this song. So we're not exactly sure, but we do know that this prayer was set to music. And it was a part of the life of God's people. Because notice verse 19. We're not going to look at this next week, but we see it here, verse 19, the last part of 19. He ends like this. To the choir master with stringed instruments. So what, what do we learn from this? What Habakkuk has learned about God leads to worship. What Habakkuk knows about God leads to worship, and not just individual worship through an individual prayer, but, but he pens his prayer to be used in the gathering of God's people for future generations to sing and to celebrate God's triumph, that God will triumph even in the face of adversity. Habakkuk has prepared a way for future generations to enter into this same life of faith despite difficulty. Hymn writers even do this today, don't they? When they write lyrics about their own trials, their own hardships, and persevering in their faith, I think of the song, It Is Well. We all know It Is Well. It allows us and future generations to participate in and experience and gain confidence that we too by faith can endure the struggle. I'm not alone. How about that? Someone else has gone through it and survived. Remarkable. I can sing about that. That seems to be what Habakkuk is doing here. Our knowledge of God must lead to worship. And specifically, it must lead us to sing and pray. Let's not think that our prayer is insignificant in the life of the church. What we know about God must lead to worship through prayer. And what we see here is that Habakkuk, he brings his requests to the Lord. He, he petitions with God for God to do something. A prayer of faith pleads with God to act on our behalf. Notice, notice verse 2. Oh, Lord, I have heard the report of you. And your work, O oh Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Habakkuk makes three petitions, right? So he's heard the report of God. He's encountered the living God. He stands in awe of God's work. He fears God. So he now asks, in the midst of the years, revive it. In other words, in our own day, do a work like you've done in the past. I've heard what you've done. And now, oh Lord, would you do it again? Revive a work among us in our time. Do you pray like this? Perhaps we've heard of what God has done in the past. Perhaps we've seen his saving work in the past. And now we pray, Lord, do it again. 
I want to see our hearts revived so that we have a, a passion for your word, a passion to live by your word, a zeal to see people saved through the hearing of your word. Lord, we want people to see your mighty work in their life and stand in awe of you. Would you do that again, Lord? Do you pray that way? Do you pray that way? Does your knowledge of God, I've heard the report of you, lead to now? I want to see it. I want to experience it. Because knowing the report of God, knowing what he has done, is not the end goal. Information is not the goal. Proclamation leading to transfer, transformation and exaltation of God in Christ is the goal. Proclamation leading to transformation, transformation to the exaltation of God in Christ is the goal. Knowing Christ intimately and personally and seeing others come to know Christ. That's our mission. Personally, that's the goal. And our encounter with the knowledge of God and how do we come to know God? We come to know God through his word, through the testimony of his people, and fellowship with one another as Christ is proclaimed. Growth in understanding must lead to a prayer that pleads with God to do a work again. Let's plead with God to save, and let's plead with God to sanctify us in the truth, for his word is truth. Habakkuk prays, revive a work again, but also in the midst of the years, make it known. Make it known. So we pray, Lord, your work, your actions, your salvation, make it known in our day and in our time as you've done in the past. Sometimes we don't plead with God in this way, at least this is what I find in myself. I don't plead with God in these ways because we become content in the way things are. We become content with the way we are or the way things are. And so we rarely ask for God to act on our behalf. Or what we request has to do with changing our circumstances. Lord, fix my problem. Take away my trial and difficulty. Now, hear me this morning. I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm not saying that is wrong. I think we should do that. It's not wrong to ask God to remove a trial or a struggle. But in the midst of that difficulty, it is right and God glorifying to plead with God to do what is necessary that he might be made known. If that means going through exile, if that means going through this hard thing in my life right now, to make you known, do it. Do it, Lord. In our midst, we want you, O oh Lord, to be made known. Habakkuk, lastly, his third petition here, he makes this petition, this request. In wrath, remember mercy. Though God and judgment were beginning at the household of God, 
and his wrath will be poured out on those who rejected him within Israel, right? In wrath, remember mercy, have compassion on us. That was the plea, that God's justice and wrath would be accompanied by his mercy and love and compassion for his people. In the midst of your righteous anger, Lord, remember mercy toward us. So, have you heard the report of God? Have you encountered the real and living God? Because if you truly have, when you are reminded of his actions, it will or should lead to worship. And as we prepare for Christmas, this coming year, as we prepare for the arrival, we're being reminded of the arrival of Jesus during Advent, and the reminder of his first coming, and how Israel awaited for this promised Messiah, expecting and longing for God to do a work in their day, it serves as a reminder today to say, yes, Lord, renew a work again. Come, Lord Jesus. Work in the present the way you worked in the past. We want to experience you. We want to see you made known. Revive it. Make it known. Remember mercy. If we are going to live by faith, then our knowledge of God must lead to worship and prayer, and we must recall God's faithfulness in the past. This is my second point. We must recall God's faithfulness in the past. And in verses 3 through 15, there's a sense in which we see the answer to this petition, in wrath, remember mercy. A prayer of faith recounts God's faithfulness in the past. And in this section, Habakkuk describes God appearing in power and glory. So, so look with me now at, at verses 3 through 7. God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence. And plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. What Habakkuk begins to do in this poetic prayer is rehearse the mighty actions of God in coming to bring judgment. It looks back to the events from the Exodus. God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. Not sure how much you know about the geography in, in that day, but Teman and Mount Paran are regions that are south and east of Egypt. So they're south and east of Egypt. They're south of Judah, south of Judah, sorry, south of Judah, east of Egypt. So you could think of the, the wilderness wanderings, right? In, in, in Israel, within Israel, they left Mount Sinai. They leave Sinai when they receive the Ten Commandments and they go to the wilderness. And this is the general location as they're making their way up to the promised land. And so there, there's, a, there's a picture here of God coming from the south, coming from the wilderness, 
God is seen as, as, as rising, as a, as a light shining, filled with the splendor of a king. And he's, he's appearing from the wilderness to bring judgment upon the oppressor. You recall in Exodus 2, 23 through 25, that the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery in Egypt and they cried out for help. And God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. This was the start of the Exodus. God's people cried out from Egypt. God hears and sees and knows, and he will come then to rescue them. He will judge the enemy. That's the imagery that we see here. God was on the move from the wilderness. His brightness is on display. His power is veiled. God's presence is in view. Like the appearance of the Lord at Sinai in Exodus 19. Thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain so that all the people in the camp trembled. We see here that pestilence are before him and plagues follow behind him. What's this remind us of? The plagues from Egypt. The plagues in Egypt in Exodus 7 through 12. God is coming in judgment. We get a picture here of God marching along. And his movement has an effect on the, on the earth and on the nations. That which was permanent, stable, and secure in the earth is revealed as frail, fragile, and impermanent compared to the awesome power of God. Verse 6, he stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered, the everlasting hills sank low. The earth is at his disposal. He stands and measures the earth. He looks and shakes the nations. God is going to overthrow the enemy. Habakkuk now sees Cushon and, and Midian afflicted and distressed. He sees them trembling. These are locations that are in a similar proximity to, to Teman and Paran. And again, it's a reminder that the nations tremble before God. His presence and power will be felt on the earth among the nations. I can, I can imagine seeing this on the big screen, right? Picture movies nowadays. As the earth shakes and trembles, as the God of the universe is on the move. And just picture that. It's remarkable. This vision reassures Habakkuk that God is faithful. He will bring judgment upon the enemy. Habakkuk has, has looked on the pages of history, the, this painting on the wall of God's story. We actually have a, a timeline. If you've noticed in our fellowship hall, we have a giant timeline, the storyline of the Bible as we've worked through the Gospel Project. And when you look at that timeline... You can go in there in the fellowship hall later and take a, take a look at it. When you, when you look at the timeline, it's as though Habakkuk goes back, looks at the Exodus, and he, he jumps into the story. And he says, that's our story. A new Exodus is coming. 
And God's people must remember this and must sing about this in the midst of their difficulty and oppression. In wrath, God remembers mercy. And that's what we will see here in verses 8 through 15. If we are to live by faith in the midst of difficulty, then we must have confidence in God's future salvation. This is my third and final point. We must have confidence in God's future salvation. We must believe in God's promise to save his people. A prayer of faith trusts in and celebrates God's promise to save. Because what we see in verses 8 through 15 is a victory march, a celebration in song of God's mighty power to save. And this becomes the basis for which Habakkuk and future generations can place their confidence in God's promises because he has saved in the past and he will do so again. And so look with me at verses 8 through 15. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. In verse 8, Habakkuk begins this new section by asking a series of questions. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation? In other words, what was the purpose of this? What was the purpose of your judgment? What was the purpose of the arrival in Egypt? We can ask the same thing, especially when we think of Advent and Christmas. We might ask, what was the purpose of your Christ's first coming? In verse 13, we see the answer to the appearance of God in the Exodus, which became the longing not only of Israel in exile, but for all of God's people, even as they waited for the first coming of Christ and even as we wait for the second coming of Christ. The anger against the rivers, the indignation against the sea would remind us of what happened in Egypt. Right? Not only were the rivers turned to blood, but God drove the sea back with a strong east wind all night 
so that his people then could, could cross on dry ground. And then he, he brought back the water upon those who pursued his people. We see this in verse 15 as well. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. God comes like a powerful army on horses. He is a victorious warrior riding on battle in a chariot, on a chariot ready with his bow and arrows. He, he's pursuing the enemy. His presence splits the rivers, splits the earth and the rivers. The earth quakes, the mountains see and tremble as though in the pain of childbearing. The sun and moon stood in their place, right? reminder of Joshua, the victory at Gibeon in Joshua 10. He marches through the earth like a farmer, threshing the nations, that is, trampling down the nations. But why all this? Why all this justice and judgment? Is it because God just wants to punish people? Is it just because he's a God of wrath? God of the Old Testament, God of wrath. No. It's because of his salvation. Salvation comes through judgment. Verse 13, you went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. Salvation through judgment. God went out for the salvation of his people, for the salvation of his anointed. Certainly pointing forward to a greater fulfillment in Christ and those who are united by faith in him. God went out, brought judgment upon the wicked in order to bring salvation for his people. This was evident in the Exodus, which is what this is alluding to. This was the longing of the exiles as they looked forward to a new Exodus. But what we see is that this finds its ultimate and final fulfillment in God's Son. Matthew 1.21, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? The verse goes on. For he will save his people from their sins. What we celebrate in the arrival of Jesus is that he came to save. He brought us salvation through the judgment that he experienced on the cross for our sins. It was for us and for our salvation. And we await his final arrival. We await his arrival again when he comes to judge the enemy and bring us final salvation. Habakkuk and future generations can sing of God's salvation through judgment. And if they're to live by faith in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of exile, they must place their confidence in God's future salvation with a belief that he has acted on their behalf in the past and continually believe that he will do so again in the future. And even if they die in exile, Habakkuk probably dies in exile. 
even if they die. So he never got to see it. He never got to see the fulfillment of it. Even if they die in exile, the righteous shall live by faith. You see, we can step into this story. We can respond in faith in Christ, with faith in Christ, and be fully convinced of what is coming for us who believe. And though our circumstances might not change, we can worship God. We can pray with faith for God to revive us again. We can pray by recalling God's faithfulness in the past, and we can draw near to God, fully convinced that he is for us, and will finally rescue us when Christ returns, and that's what we wait for. As the Israelites waited for the arrival of the Messiah, and as we will sing shortly, Come Thou Long-Expected Jesus, we can sing with confidence, knowing that he has come, and we can draw near, we can draw on that, knowing that he is coming again, and we can make that our own prayer. And as, as we sing this Christmas season, whether it's corporately here together or, or individually on your own as you listen to Christmas songs, reflect on the words that you hear. Reflect on the words that you hear, like this prayer that was put to song. I didn't draw this out, but this little phrase, Selah, do you see that in your Bibles? Italicized, Selah. It's likely that this word in our text was used as a pause in the music. It's a pause, allowing us to meditate on the Lord's power and the Lord's salvation for us. Let's not let this Christmas season go by without pausing, without reflecting upon what God has done for us in Christ. Let's not let this Christmas season go on without contemplating and meditating deeply on God's word so that we might encounter the living God and experience authentic worship for his glory. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Our heart's desire and prayers to see you work among us, to see you work in our midst, revive a work here, save those who are lost, sanctify those who are following Christ. Sanctify us in your word and by your word. Would you do a work here in our day? We've heard the report of you. We want to see it. We want to see it in our own lives. We want to see it in our church as we grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. And our petitions with you, as we are reminded of what you have done, lead to praise. They lead us to recall your faithfulness to us in the past, 
And they lead us to sing of your great salvation that we have experienced in Christ and what we look forward to at the final return of Christ when we are with you singing your praises for all eternity. So we give you thanks this morning. We ask that you would allow us to pause, allow us to think deeply upon the words that we hear and on the words that we sing so that you might be honored and glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.